spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Revenge just might be the name of the game this week. It's episode 365 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and oh boy, do I have a great bunch of interviews lined up for you. How about the cast and director of Tom Clancy's Without Remorse from Paramount and Amazon Prime Video? So that means Michael B. Jordan going to be joining the show this week. Jody Turner-Smith going to be joining the show and a whole host of others to talk about this amazing movie that's available right now on Amazon Prime Video. Also, yeah, going to be talking about The Nevers once again after the third episode. You're probably still in shock. So let's talk to Elizabeth Barrington about what happened in episode three of The Nevers and kind of tease what's going to be happening in episode four, which is coming up this Sunday, which has another big reveal. And what's going on with Lucy Best? We'll ask her about that. Plus, a brand new sponsor for the show this week, HelloFresh. You want to talk about a great way to feed your family and feed them quickly? Got a great offer coming up for you a little bit later on in the show. Plus, my spoiler-filled review of the Mortal Kombat movies coming up. We'll talk some nerd news, some comics, but I just can't wait anymore. Let's talk to the cast and the director of Tom Clancy's Without Remorse next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Malcolm Barrett from Timeless, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. A movie that I've been really looking forward to on Amazon Prime Video is Tom Clancy's Without Remorse, which is now streaming, by the way. And I actually got a chance to participate in a press conference, which was moderated by the wonderful Kelly Carter of ESPN's The Undefeated. And there was some amazing talent that participated in that. Michael B. Jordan, Jody Turner-Smith was involved, director Stefano Salima, Lauren London, Brett Gelman, and others, and really got to dive in to what this action movie is all about and how just intense and emotionally intense, not just action was emotionally intense than the movie was as well. Actually, the first question was for Stefano and it was that how was your experience as a war zone camera operator, which is pretty cool that he was right. Help inform you in making films, especially films like this one, Tom Clancy's without remorse. Here's what he had to say. I mean, it's like what you, when you work in a, a war zone area, you have the responsibility to report that the reality you are uh, living in a truthful and respectful way. And most of all, I think that you cannot dirty the reality with your own point of view. So it's like sort of you don't want to judge what you are experiencing. This is up to the audience that is going to judge on their own. And then I feel this is the, the spirit of the objective reporting. And I feel it, that in the movie, translate more or less in, uh, in the same uh, way. You, I need to inform, to study a lot, to know everything about the world that I'm going to portray. And when I put together, or when I work on a character, I don't want to never to judge so I try to leave this pleasure to the to the audience. So it's a way to be close to the story, to your character, but at the same way, in the same time, to be respectful a step ahead. Great to hear from star Michael B. Jordan, but how about producer Michael B. Jordan? This was actually his first action movie 
from his production company. So the question was, what did this experience actually teach you as a producer? You know, just being involved from the absolute beginning, you know, to, to, to the end, I think it was very hands-on in a way of how to build out stunts, you know, what the process mm -hmm. you know, would be. And, you know, having experienced producers like, you know, Akiva, and Liz Raposo, you know, another, another, uh, you know, people who really have been through the process before that worked on high, uh, high stakes action movies, and really following their lead on how to like package together. Okay, we're going to do this intense airplane crash that you know is going to, and usually in working with the visual uh, visual effects supervisor to work out that sequence and how exactly we're going to practically shoot it. All right, we're going to use the crane on this shot and we need water tanks and this and that. So it was like, it was just going through the process of, of building that out. You know, it was, it was a learning curve for myself. So I walk away from this movie with more knowledge and experience and how to put those, those sequences, those movies together. Yeah. I, I know when to shut up and listen, you know what I mean? And learn. So I was a sponge on this one. And uh, I think, I think we walked away with the, with something that we could be really happy about. The next question was actually for both Jody Turner-Smith and Michael B. Jordan, and to talk about the relationship between John Kelly and Karen Greer, which is really great in this movie, by the way, and why it's different than what we might traditionally see on screen between a man and a woman. Here's what they had to say. Yeah, you know, I think it is so important. Every time you speak to somebody, your relationship is, that, is alive in that conversation. And whether you're actually talking to them about something that is concerning your relationship or not, it's you know, the trust that you have, the respect that you have, the love that you have is always alive when you speak to someone that you have relationship with. And mm -hmm. it always felt important to me and to Michael that we just try to infuse that in our scenes, even when we're coming and we're, we're butting heads. And even when it's, I, I'm really not understanding mentally what he's going through, but I'm trying to be there for him, like all of that. And, and especially when, you know, it came to sort of giving him this what I give him that kind of lets him decide to go, okay, I'm going to take these actions. So, you know, and I think it's really wonderful and really brave to have a relationship where it is just talking about and really displaying platonic love, you know what I mean? Which I think is the purest form of love that there is, mm -hmm. you know, and these two are deeply bound by that. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, finding the balance and I guess putting my producer hat back on, you know, yeah. me and, you know, and Stefano, you know, and, and Akiva, you know, we, we, you know, we really, you know, wanted to work through finding that balance between, you know, camaraderie and that brother or sister relationship that they had, you know, to, to make sure that, you know, the audience understood that and didn't want anybody to be misunderstood by the relationship, by the dynamic. You know, I think we mm -hmm. wanted to be really clear that they loved each other, but it was like, we got your back no matter what, you know, like in, through thick and thin, I'm not going to leave you behind. You know, we're, you know, I'm, I'm, this might get me in trouble, but I'm still going to give you this. And I'm still, I still have to look out for your best interest because you're not actually all the way thinking clearly at this moment. So to be able to really define those dynamics and relationships, but also be very respectful to John's relationship with Pam, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and we didn't want anybody to assume or try to forward think that their relationship will go down a road that it wasn't supposed to. We want to make sure we honor John's motivation throughout this movie. And that was something that we kept a close eye on as we developed those scenes. You know, I think, I think we found a pretty good balance between the two. There was another very important relationship in this movie, and it was between Lauren London's Pam and Michael B. Jordan's John Kelly, you know, because they're married in the film. So how did they build that relationship between John and Pam to make it so authentic? throughout the film that was the next question and here's lauren london and michael b jordan on that you know i think that you know you bring your life experiences to your art 
I always love artists that work like that. And so I try my best to be honest in that way. And I think just being a mother and a partner and experiencing love to the degree that I was able to experience it, I brought that tenderness and vulnerability to this character. And uh, Michael being a really good friend of mine before we ever worked together made it really comfortable and respectful and gave me, held a space for me to be able to be so vulnerable in this character at the time of my life that I was in. Yeah, I mean, I mean, everything Lauren just said, you know, it was something that us as actors and artists, you know, being able to to have opportunity to express ourselves through our work is sometimes the only release that we can really get in that type of way. And I, we were so lucky as, as a project and, 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 and as a scene partner for Lauren to be so, you know, generous, you know, to, to, you know, help me personally, you know, get through and understand a mind state and some of those emotional beats of what a person would be going through in certain situations. So I think it just added mm -hmm. so many layers to the performance across the board and also was my driving force throughout the movie as well. So it's something that, you know, sometimes in movies, you just get those X factors that that special, whatever it is, you know, to that, that just, you know, makes things just pop the way it is. And, and Lauren for us was, was definitely one of those things. Talking to the stars and director of Tom Clancy's Without Remorse, which is now streaming on Amazon Prime Video, the audio from the press conference that I got to attend a couple of weeks ago, right before the film came out. And Jodie Turner-Smith is great in this movie, especially in the action sequences. So she's going to talk about that a little bit, but you wouldn't believe what she was going through while filming this movie. Shit, listen to this. Well, I was pregnant at the time. So that definitely added a level of intensity to it that I didn't even myself anticipate. I mean, I'm used to feeling like, okay, I'm a strong person, I'm an athletic person, I can push my body to the limit to do this, this and that. And to sort of jump into this, and you know, I kind of have a, a little bit of a, a background in this genre being that I started on a television show on TNT called The Last Ship. That was kind of my first big role on television. And that was all about just, you know, running around, getting the bad guys, jumping in and out of stuff, getting exploded. So I thought this was something that I was definitely ready to throw my body into, but to sort of add that really unique, I mean, nobody really tells you what, all that your body is going through. And it's so funny because it's like, I've trained for many things in my life, but mm -hmm. what was required of me physically with carrying this baby and doing this film is unlike anything that mm -hmm. I, I have ever experienced. So. In terms of what was it like, I mean, it was intense, you know, obviously I worked with a trainer as well, you know, Michael was so gracious to let me borrow his trainer sometimes. And then also, obviously, you know, as part of the production, they had us working with these guys on set that were making sure that we were, you know, had integrity with the way that we were moving, the way that we moved as a mm. team, the way that we were, you know, moving in combat, the way we would use our weapons, the way that we would command each other in, in groups, because, you know, these are men that are working together all the time to the point where they become a unit, they become like one. And we're needing to emulate this idea that we have been for years living this life and working together. So, you know, it was all of that and just throwing myself into into all of it. And, you know, one thing about Stefano is he really wants to make it look as cool and interesting as possible by having us do as much as we can. And so, you know, I definitely was like, I saw what I was capable of because it was just like, I was working twice as hard. I mean, there's so many things you don't know. I didn't even know I wasn't going to be able to breathe like everybody else. 
Mm-hmm. Lord, why didn't you tell me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it was a little bit on the hush, but yeah, no. <laughs> okay, Lauren, you should have pulled me to the side when you came. I'm sorry. I know. Okay. <laughs> I apologize. Y'all know you know, sometimes you got to walk through by yourself. <laughs> Everybody's body is different, you know? Yeah. Next up was the villainous Brett Gelman, who plays our big bad in this movie, or one of the big bads anyway. So the question to him was pretty simple. What drew you to want to play such an evil character in Tom Clancy's Without Remorse? First of all, yeah, I've, I've played some not-so-great guys in the past. Yeah. This was really kicking it to a whole other level of evil and sickness, you know, and really, you know, the chance to work with Michael was a huge, you know, it's like, you want to do this with Michael B. Jordan? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Absolutely. And then also Stefano, like again, the chance to work with him, you know, I was just like such huge fans of both of these guys' work. So, you know, it was a no brainer. And not too shabby to go to Berlin either. It's a great city. So, yeah. And just, he was, he's really interesting to me because, well, without giving anything away, this is a movie where everybody has a very distinct code. And it's really about willing to die for that code, and no matter what that code is. And really believing that that's your whole belief system. That's your whole mentality. That's your whole... Mm soul really so to really get into that with this character was just so fascinating to me you know because a lot of the times the bad behavior of past characters of mine it it came out of like a desperation or a deep loneliness and Mm -hmm. that's not like what this guy was coming from it was from a deep belief system that he has Mm -hmm. uh, as dark as that is and i think you know again without giving it away it's like you know he also uh, he's he's a great villain because you not only experience his villainy, but then you ask who the true villain actually is. Even in the heroes, you know, I think like it's just a, a beautiful movie of complicated of mm-hmm. complicated people. That's what you know. Again, why like Stefano like brought that out so much because like he said, he's not judging any character. He's just like letting us exist. So. There is the the bad and the good guys and the good and the bad guys, in a way. So the final question goes to Michael B. Jordan. And you'll notice when you watch this movie that a lot of the sequences actually take place either in the water or underwater. So the question to him was, what's, what's it like preparing for something like that? And listen to this, how long can you hold your breath underwater was another question. You won't believe the answer to this one. Right now, I'm just, for, for a whole song. Uh, you, oh, that's at least, wow. at, at least at least the song. It, it's mm-hmm. it's uh it's one of those things where your breath and breathing is definitely an, a a trained thing. It's an exercise. Mm-hmm. So if you if you stop training and you stop exercising that 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 muscle, you can definitely lose it. But you know, underwater uh, training was definitely something that we spent a lot of time in. You know, we knew we had these these sequences earlier in the script development phase, you know, Stefano looked at me and was like, Mike, you know, you got to do all these, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> easy, easy, no problem. So um, we hooked up with some uh, some military uh, <clears throat> divers and we spent time in the tanks and, you know, put us under stressful situations where we would have to problem solve, work through malfunctions, uh, gear failure, 
work through military like rebreathers, which is, you know, uh, basically machines that these uh, uh, soldiers would wear to basically suppress all the bubbles so they could breathe underwater without leaving any like physical traces. And we had to work heavy with as hell. Like, <laughs> like, I don't know how many pounds they would weigh, but like they would, they were so heavy, but then you have like a, you know, uh, you know, a flotation bag that you have to like manipulate the pressure of. So you can like, you know, you can have like zero, uh, so you can kind of be buoyant enough to like stay underwater, but not buoyant enough to float to the top. So anyway, it was a lot of uh, very detailed training that we went through for the water exercises. And uh, yeah, I can hold my breath, you know, during filming for for pretty pretty long, maybe about three minutes or so. Let like me that. tell you, Michael will put this song on. Okay, I'm gonna <laughs> tell you what the song was, but he would put this song on, and the whole time that song was on, I'm looking at this man. He's under the water, just like. <laughs> just like Meanwhile, my eyes, I was so pregnant at that point. I was like. Okay. <laughs> 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 and also. When and when uh, after as soon as I say cut, it was dancing. <laughs> I remember I was like, whoa! Yeah, I got under the water while somebody was coming. Like he was just like, we can't just chill here for another thirty seconds after this. Yeah, I'm a water baby. I, mean, I, I love being in the water. And honestly, if you if you're calm and you're sitting still, you know you can hold your breath for a lot longer. So like we cre they created an environment for us to kind of like really relax and just kind of mm -hmm. like be at peace. So without giving too much away, there's a, there's a moment in the movie you know where you see me kind of be at peace underwater. And, and and that's that's the one that everybody's uh, talking about. So you want to talk about an action movie that is intensely personal, that is really, as Brett Gilman was saying, it's code driven and just really tactically sound, I felt like. And a lot of very unique and great action sequences. You're going to want to watch Tom Clancy's Without Remorse now streaming on Amazon Prime Video. Definitely take the time to watch it. Some great individual performances and just overall a very, very well done film. Once again, thanks to Amazon and everyone involved for letting me be a part of the press conference for Tom Clancy's Without Remorse. Up next, let's talk about the Nevers once again and follow up from that big third episode and end in episode four. Let's talk to Elizabeth Barrington, who plays Lucy Best. We'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Lydia from Lucifer, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I know you guys are already hooked on the Nevers. You're watching it every Sunday night on HBO and again on HBO Max, as you should be. And from the first episode, here's somebody that stood out to me a lot, and that was Lucy Best, played by the lovely Elizabeth Barrington. Just happened to have her this week. Elizabeth, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. So seeing these first few episodes, Elizabeth, it's clear that the Nevers has just such a fantastic cast. So can you talk about just what it was like to work with so many amazing women and men, quite frankly, on the show? It was such great work, you know, on, on a day to day basis. You know, you're just you're just enjoying the work and discovering the scripts and the storyline. But every now and again, James, you did have to kind of pinch yourself because day after day you're walking um, off the makeup bus and onto set and there's more girls and more girls and more women and women are taking the lead and it and obviously it's a shared space with with guys as well and wonder all sorts of wonderful artists but it, you are pinching yourself because you know you realize that that doesn't happen that often you know it's right. uh, it's it is most definitely not the norm that felt felt really good and just really refreshing 
So just to yeah. take it back a little bit, when I first saw Lucy, I think when we first met her, my first thought literally in my head was, she runs the place. That was my first thought right off the bat was when I saw her. So do you feel like she's kind of like the mother to the orphans or do you think that she kind of sees herself differently maybe? Do you know, I do think she sees herself differently in as much as um, she's got this great backstory, which is um, something that we talked about with, with Joss right in the beginning. And it wasn't anything that I knew about. But at that time, from the sort of eight, late 1800s to the mid 1950s, so nearly 100 years, there was this big gang of women in London who were, you know, petty criminals, they were pickpocketers, and they were called um, the 40 elephants. And that's Lucy's story. That's where she she comes from and it is linked into the kind of narrative and they were quite a feared gang you know so she comes she's a survivor she comes from the streets she knows how to handle herself she finds herself in the the orphanage with all of these you know waifs and strays and I, and I wonder as a woman of her time really whether talking about her in the third person but whether she'd be viewing herself from a much more kind of masculine point of view, you know? Interesting, yeah. More like a sort of bulldog. She's she's quite cautious. And maybe the caution comes from the fact that she's always somebody who's, are the police around the next corner who, or who's snitching or who's telling tales, you know? Um, so she's just quite wary, but ready to react. So quite reactive, but cautious at the same time. Yeah, I think she's she's definitely more that kind of woman than a sort of, nurturing mother of the world character i would think but at the same time i don't I, you know you don't really get that vibe from her right off the bat though right so do you feel, feel like that's kind of easy to like to kind of underestimate her a bit especially in the time period that we're in where, where women are underestimated and underappreciated even more anyway do you feel like that the demeanor that she puts across kind of would make people not maybe not see that in her and underestimate her in that regard i get i guess that that's possible. I, I, I mean, I was, as an actor, you know, I was thinking more about these these very tough kind of working class women who you, you'd recognise from the UK and Victorian times and, of course, in the States as well. I mean, those women, you know, they were such sort of grafters, weren't they? I mean, so, so many of the, you know, the waifs and strays in the orphanage are really young girls and, and quite just occasionally a few sort of children kind of running around as well, you know, so... I guess she knows how to roll up her sleeves and, you know, put a get a big stew on for everybody, get, get everybody fed and washed in their gym jams and ready for lights out, you know, that sort of thing. I love it. I love it. And again, we're going to get serious here for a little bit because in this past week's episode, there was a line from Amalia that really hit me. And she mm -hmm. said that all women have secrets and the touched have more than most. So how heartbreaking was it for you? when you found out about Lucy's tragic past in this past episode? Well, that, that's quite interesting, James, because, um, I mean, when I was first auditioning for the role and heard about the role, I, I knew that there was that element to her story. So I knew that that, you know, tragedy was there and is the, the undoing of her. It's also the kind of making of her, really. And, and she's very much a character who's kind of in transit and she's dealing with, tragedy and her shame because there's great shame that comes with you know what she's done and also you know she's trying she's trying to 
find a new place in her world. Can she exist in this world with what she's done? She's she's it, it, there's a real sort of push me pull you, I think, with with her, and and she and she carries it. It's a, it's a really sort of great burden. I I think that would be a fair analogy of what she, how she feels about it, really. Yeah, I think that's definitely an understatement too, for sure. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. And then on top of that, we learned that in this in this past episode, we also have that shocking what happened with mary which was completely shocking for me do you feel like that event kind of represented you you kind of touched on this just a second ago do you feel like that event kind of represents both the loss of hope but also a new sense of solidarity for the touched women as a whole oh yeah i mean that it's such a, a shocking moment in in three i think and um, just to talk about that for a moment when you we lose mary because um i mean not only is her her gift it's so beautiful it's so uh, and she's beautiful as well isn't she she's in every sense she's this gorgeous Mm -hmm. uh, beacon and and the gift is that she has is so beautiful and it's and it's in the moments that she sings that suddenly all of the pain everybody is absolved of their of whatever burdens they're carrying like Lucy suddenly there's this moment of clarity and they and they understand their purpose and she's taken so it's so brutal the way she goes and it's so unexpected um it's very interesting actually James performing that day because we were in this beautiful sort of park with the reservoir and the smoke kind of blowing over the the little reservoir there and there's there's horses and carriages everywhere it's absolutely beautiful and then she's singing this incredible song you know and Eleanor inhabited it so beautifully almost kind of in slow motion every time she performed and then suddenly she's gunned down the way she is it 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 just it was so shocking every time take after take you were just absolutely in the moment but of course the final denouement of of the episode her song has of course has brought all of these other disparate souls and touched women have come to the orphanage and they're waiting so you know, fingers crossed, you're hoping, you know, something, there'll be a phoenix from the ashes, really, uh, on losing Mary. Absolutely. That's such a great way to put it, too. We're talking to Elizabeth Bankton, who, who, of course, plays Lucy Best on The Nevers, which you watch every Sunday night on HBO and again on HBO Max. Now, Elizabeth, I feel like Lucy sees everything. I, I don't think that anything really gets past her, and <laughs> no matter where she is. So what, what do you think she sees when she looks at Amalia? Well... Maybe at times she sees a a kindred spirit in that they're both sort of powerful women or they're both sort of, they're strong women. But she does see something very cool because Amalia is very cool. And whether whether or not she's a swan and the legs are going crazy under the surface, the, the, the presentation is really, is sleek, isn't it? So, I mean, I think they're all slightly in love with, Amalia how could you not be really you know and and of course you know Lucy's blessed as well is that she's very much in the forefront of the right come on we've got to get our hands dirty you're coming with me let's go you know so yeah she's um she's really proud of her and she's proud to be part of the gang you know hench hench women are they that I don't know (laughs) I mean, that's one way you could put it. Sure. I mean, it's all it's all a matter of perspective, Elizabeth, all a matter of perspective. (laughs) It's funny you bring that up because we actually get to see her, you know, get in the mix a little bit in this past week's episode. Are you are you kind of thinking that maybe we might see her 
I don't know, get her own hands dirty a little bit more this season later on. Yeah, well, wouldn't wouldn't that be fun? Um, yeah, it would be a shame not to use her very particular gifts. Agreed. It, really? Yeah, <laughs> it would be a shame not to see her roll up the sleeves and. Yeah, I think um, I think we're gonna you're gonna see uh, there's more of that to come. I would say. I think that's fair to say without giving the game away. <laughs> All right, as I rub my hands together in anticipation of that. Okay, here we go. Um, th- there's a bit of a joke in the second episode, actually, where they talk about how whether or not Lucy could bring down this this statue, and of course everybody runs in to stop her because they don't want her to do that. But but did you do you kind of stop to think about okay, how powerful are her abilities really? Because I mean, we get to see it showing off a little bit, but not in, in a, not a ton. So have you thought about like how powerful is she really? Yeah, I, I've thought about that, and you, you, you there's definitely uh, more of that to come that that you'll be made aware of. But um, also, I think what's really useful about all of our all of our women in the orphanage, you know, they're they're just kind of flexing their muscles in so many ways, aren't they? They're just discovering what they can do, what these gifts are. I mean, there's a lovely moment with Harriet, who obviously can blow on things and they turn to glass you know where she's just practicing on I think she's practicing I think that's uh, the episode you've just seen on grapes in the courtyard or maybe that's yep, to come. It was grapes yep you're right yeah you know so they're they're just they're flexing their muscles they're learning they're they're growing with each new experience um their skills become more perfected and more sort of honed so um but but I feel hers is a seismic strength uh, but maybe her, what she has to learn, and that's her journey, is to when and where she can use her gift, you know, so she, of course, doesn't make, you know, tragic mistakes with it, which obviously we know about. So, yeah, so it, it's um, it's a work in progress, I think it's fair to say. But, yeah. We'll yeah, have to she, see where it, we'll yeah. definitely have to see where that goes. Yeah. Now. Despite the serious nature of the show, and there's a lot of serious moments, there's some fun moments too, but I'm sure that you all found a way to kind of lighten things up on the set. Do you have any maybe stories or something fun you could tell us about something that happened when the cameras weren't rolling, maybe? I've got to tell you, with period costumes, it's generally to do, and you're filming, it's to do with boobs and corsets. <laughs> and, and you've, and I you've wouldn't got, know. So. I'm afraid. Well, listen, next time you squeeze yourself into a corset, you'll feel that you've got boobs. And yeah, it's all about that. Your cleavage, your, your, you know, your mic pack has slipped down the back of your drawers. It's, you know, halfway down your tights. It's, it's that kind of shenanigans that goes on. Lots of people with their hands up your skirt, sorting out your big bloomers. Yeah getting a lot of rejigging going on why is that not a 1900s problem too well you've got to get in this course but don't forget your mic pack has to go in there and anything else that you might have no that's they didn't think about that back then and that's quite frankly you know that's that's inconsiderate on their part i reckon that's where they kept the the money they surely would have had the the purse would have been tucked up inside their drawers the top of their tights their socks anyway the mind boggles but generally stuff like that you know my goodness, my goodness. So before I let you go, Elizabeth, I have to ask, you know, now that we're halfway through the season, will things get worse before they get better? Or is there reason to have some optimism for fans here a little bit? Always have optimism, which is my motto. 
always be optimistic. But yeah, definitely, definitely things are going to get worse before they're going to get get. It's going to be swings and roundabouts. Isn't that the best kind of mystery and an adventure? Um, yeah, I think what's so gorgeous and glorious about having such a sort of a rich cast and the most phenomenal idea about superpowers, which aren't necessarily flying through the sky, you know, with a cape and it's that people's superpowers can be minute little gifts that they have, is that people are just going to be swinging in and out of focus. And um, and that's why there's definitely something for sort of everyone in tuning into the show and kind of following the story, you know. I think it's a rich a rich smorgasbord. <laughs> and it's amazing to watch these touched women just take this stuff on head on and just don't even look back before it. And I love that about the show. And I love that that we could see it every Sunday night at, at 9 p.m. Eastern time on HBO. Make sure you're watching it again on HBO Max because I have a feeling Lucy Best has a few more tricks up her sleeve in these next few episodes. It's Elizabeth Barrington. Oh. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. And if you thought episode three of The Nevers was big, oh, wait until you see episode four and what happens. Oh, I wish I could prepare you, but I can't. You're just going to have to watch for yourself. Nine o'clock Eastern time on HBO and HBO Max. Make sure you're watching The Nevers. This week, the Down and Nerdy podcast is brought to you by HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. You might remember me talking about Green Chef in the past. Well, Green Chef is owned by Hello Fresh. So it's kind of like the best of both worlds, but here's the deal. For me, anyway, in my house, I've got two kids. My wife and I work opposite schedules. It's really hard not just to decide what's for dinner, but to get dinner on the table. And Hello Fresh actually helps cut out some of that stress to get you dinner on the table in 30 minutes or less, which seems unfathomable to me. But Hello Fresh can help you do that. And you're talking about pre portioned meals so you're not overbuying anything there's no waste in the kitchen or in your wallet either by the way and it's an easy way to feed the entire family HelloFresh is very convenient it just comes contact free right to your doorstep and you can skip a week if you want to you can add extras in there if you want more meat you can get more meat so great way to customize your meal plans to fit your family. And you know what? Try something new and fun and that you know is good for you and your family. As a matter of fact, let me help you out a little bit. How about 12 free meals? Go to HelloFresh.com slash Nerdy12 and use code Nerdy12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash Nerdy, the number 12, and use code Nerdy in the number 12 for 12 free meals and free shipping. So imagine sitting down to eat faster, eating better, and having something the whole family will love with a ton of options. That's exactly what you're going to get with HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Once again, thanks to Elizabeth Barrington for joining me this week to talk about The Nevers. Up next, let's dive into Mortal Kombat. My spoiler-filled review of the new movie is up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Chin Han from Ghost in the Shell, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. So I thought about starting this out by screaming the name, but I thought that would be counterproductive. So I'll just say let's do a spoiler-filled review of the Mortal Kombat movie, the 2021 edition. And I will say that I kind of feel like the original synopsis was a little misleading after seeing the movie because it says that, you know, Cole Young, who's played by Louis Tan, is, you know, the one that's seeking out 
Earth's champions or the champions of Earth realm, and that's not really the case because technically, isn't Raiden doing it or Liu Kang doing it? And he just, you know, Cole just happens to be a part of the puzzle piece. So I, I just thought that was a little misleading. So a little bit, a little bit of nitpicking as I get started here. I'm not gonna go through every little bits and bit and piece of the film. I'm just gonna go ahead and pick out a few things that I either liked or didn't like. I will say that overall. I thought the fight scenes were pretty good. I thought that it was definitely a, a step up. I especially loved the fight scenes with Bihan and 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 Hanzo. I thought those were amazing. So props to both of those guys who I thought did a wonderful job. A wonderful job in their roles in general, by the way. If there were a couple of standouts, Joe, Joe Taslam, I think, was definitely one of them for sure. And Hiroyuki Sonata was definitely another one. Those two, and and one of them in a somewhat limited capacity, I thought did a really good job. Josh Lawson's Kano was fan-freaking-tastic. You want to talk about nailing a role. He absolutely 100% just embodied that Kano role. Absolutely amazing. And I also have to say, too, just really quickly, C.C. Stringer as Melina did not see enough of her, quite frankly, because my goodness, was she fierce and ruthless. I could have watched so much more of her for sure. But here's the deal. What we did get to see a lot of in this movie was Cole Young getting his ass kicked a lot frequently. Like you guys really wanted to hammer home the point that this guy was kind of a down on his luck MMA fighter guy that really didn't think he had that special thing, actually walks out on the team at one point, right, because Raiden kind of pushes him and says, you know, just go home to your family. Basically, you suck, and you can leave now. That's, that, I mean, for lack of a better term, isn't that what he said? Sort of thing, the training wasn't working out for him, so he kind of boots him out of there, even though he really, really needed him. So I thought that that was interesting that that's the angle they took. Yeah, I mean, y- y- you could give him the credit. For the Goro win, right? But think about it. Without his wife? I want you to think about that scene where he's fighting Goro. And and granted, he put up a darn good fight against Goro. But without his wife there to help him when he's getting choked out, he dies. Okay? And then this movie is done for as far as where, well, his role in it is concerned. He gets saved a lot. Nothing wrong with that. But d- don't even try to tell me this guy's... The hero of the movie. And yeah, it was a two-on-one fight against Sub-Zero at the end too, by the way. One of which was Scorpion. So you needed a lot of help to take down Sub-Zero. Now that's credit to Sub-Zero and how powerful he is. No doubt about that. Not even going to say that that's not it. But at the same time, let's not act like Cole Young is this like major hero that just stood out above the rest and just took down all comers. That is absolutely 100%. Not what happens. As a matter of fact, in limited action, Kung Lao showed more leadership and badassery than Cole Young showed in this entire movie, quite frankly. So, and I mean, Sonya Blade, the same thing. Jessica McNamee was really, really good too, I thought. And here's the deal. One thing I thought they did do really well, though, was how they're chosen. I thought that was really neat. So, of course... You see Cole Young was a descendant of Hanzo, so obviously that's how he got the mark. But you can also get the mark by defeating another champion who has the mark. And if you do that, you get the mark. I thought that was a really, really neat thing that they did. And it explains how some of them got the mark and some of them didn't. I thought that that was really, really smart how they did that. I also loved how Shang Tsung was a cheater. 
I loved that so much. And Chin Han, by the way, former guest on the show, was really good in that role as well. I, I think that he is a long-term answer to Shang Tsung. Definitely, no question about that. And I even thought that there were, you know, there were some good limited performances as well here and there. I thought Cabal was really good, too. I thought the look for Reptile was good. I actually thought that the character designs overall were really, really good. But this movie didn't wow me like I wanted it to. Like, some of the fight scenes were really good. There were also some ho-hum fight scenes as well. And I thought it dragged a little bit once we had that meeting between Sonya and Kano and Cole, I thought it dragged a little bit at that point in the middle-ish. I don't necessarily if I know if I would call that the middle, but it definitely dragged on a little bit in, in that certain spot. And I thought they could have gotten to things a little bit quicker. And, and during the training, I mean, yeah, when they were trying to unlock their abilities, I get that that's just not going to happen overnight. I did love how Kano got his first, his first too, so he could talk trash about it. But... When you're talking about how they unlock these abilities, I thought that that was a really interesting thing that they did too and how you had to basically, you know, you, you had to channel it. It was just going to happen when it was going to happen and you didn't know what it was going to be, by the way. Although Sonya seemed to get hers really fast. Did you notice that? And I thought that the, the Jax, the way they brought that story along, first of all, McCod Brooks is fantastic. That dude, I mean, he is just ripped. He was so perfect. For that role, and I love the fact that they start him out with the with the arms that don't really work, and then he has to build himself up and you know kind of stick with it. And he and I that's the other thing too. They didn't really, I mean, they told us what the past was between Sonya and Jax, and maybe as a fan you should get there faster. And maybe that's something that they did and they didn't want to waste a whole lot of time on when they have when they have their little moment where she tells him she, that he basically needs to get off his ass and. And, you know, stop whining and just start competing again. I don't feel like they earned that moment. And I don't, again, maybe that's me nitpicking, but you don't really establish that other than basically just telling us they know each other and that they serve together. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. So maybe I'm supposed to just connect those dots, right? But I feel like in that moment where he's emotionally breaking down, you've got to earn that, right? Like with Cole. I felt like they did earn it because he was taking a beating basically most of his life, right? So you could almost understand why he'd walk away. You're not happy with him about it, but you could understand how he could get to that point and who could bring him back from that too, by the way. So they earned that, but they don't. there's other moments in this movie I thought too that they don't really earn. I thought the Kano turn was easy. With him going to to Shang Tsung's team, I thought that was very, very easy, and I thought that that wasn't a big surprise at all. I do love that it was Sonya that had to go against him, though, and that they didn't kind of cheat us out of that moment. I thought that that was a really, really smart move. The pairing offs of the battles when they did do that, I thought was interesting. I thought Lord Raiden was really strong presence in this movie, and there were a lot of things about it. That did make sense, like like him being the descendant and how Raiden finds the baby and all that stuff. I thought that that was smart. I thought that what the reasoning behind what Behan did to Hanzo's family, even though it was brutal, you know, you earned that moment. You and that fight at the end, you earned that by giving us that at the beginning of the movie. But at the same time, I liked it. I'm definitely looking forward to a sequel. Wasn't blown away by it, though, like I expected to be. I was really going into it 
feeling like I was going to be blown away and there would be these tremendously amazing fight scenes. And there were a few overall. I thought they were good, not great. And I was hoping for great throughout. I just don't think I got there. I don't think there were really any characters missing. Obviously you got to save something for a sequel, assuming that you're going to get there. And I think they will. So you save characters like Katana, right? Maybe smoke, something like that. You save these characters for a possible sequel because Shang Tsung's going to need to build up his army a little bit, right? And then, of course, you save somebody like Johnny Cage, who they, by the way, biggest spoiler here, they tease him at the end. So there should be no surprise that we're going to see Johnny Cage in the sequel. Not even going to kind of get into who's going to be playing him. Let's get the sequel officially announced first. Then we can start talking about who's going to play Johnny Cage. But if I'm comparing, if I'm really comparing... I thought that the Mortal Kombat Legends Scorpion's Revenge animated feature from Warner Brothers was better than this. And that's not a bad thing, by the way. That was a good movie. If you missed that because you were like, I animated movie, I don't want to watch that. You need to go back and watch it because it was just as brutal, if not more brutal, than this Mortal Kombat movie was. There was a ton of good action, a really good Scorpion and Sub-Zero story in that as well. A lot of things that, that happened in there made just as much sense. So do yourself a favor and go back and watch Mortal Kombat Legends Scorpion's Revenge if you haven't yet. So again, this one, good, not great. I'm curious to see if they can step things up in a possible sequel because I really think they might be able to do that. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Mortal Kombat movie. Up next, how about we talk about some comics on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book writer Peter Hogan, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This week, a couple of very different types of heroes. It's time for what we're reading. Let's start out with Robin, number one, with the spotlight on Damien. Joshua Williamson writing this one. Gleb Malenikov doing the art here. Also the colors as well. And AWL's Troy, Troy Petrie on the, the letters. Now, speaking of Damien, he's off the grid. Batman can't find him. None of the Bat family can find him. Just minor spoilers in this review, by the way. He's out searching for the League of Lazarus and why his parents kept it from him and what the whole thing is all about. Now, it seems like there might be a deeper reason that Damien is leaving, but you know that Damien would never admit it, even if there was. And, and he, I mean, Batman knows if his son doesn't want to be found, he's not going to be found. But it really seems like Damien's eager for a fight. But, I mean, again, classic Damien, right? So he finds his first challenge of the tournament, and the fight might not go... As you expect, but I mean, the question I had at the end was, am I really seeing what I'm seeing? Because I mean, it's comics, right? So you, you never really know. And I'm not going to spoil that part for you. But I will say this. This book is classic Damien attitude wise. So you won't be disappointed there if you're already a Damien fan. So Joshua Williamson capture that per- captures that perfectly. I do like how the story gets to the point, though. I mean, since Damien's finding what he's looking for pretty quickly and that seems to be inevitable because it's Damien, and, and again, that's just something that he's able to do. The ending isn't as shocking as I would have expected it to be, though, but I'm curious to see how it plays out, and I like seeing some of the different characters in this book as well. Speaking of characters, I do love the design of the new suit. The art overall is really solid, so that's another reason that you're going to want to check this out, though, but keep your eyes on Damien's face throughout this book because there's a whole other story being told 
just by Damien's face, and that is really a testament to the art. So if you're really paying attention, you could def definitely get a little something extra there. So, I mean, I like Damien as a character. I think I was very intrigued by what I read here. I'm definitely down for checking out another issue of this Robin book, especially since Joshua Williamson's done so well with so much of the other DC stuff that he's written. Yeah, I'm curious to see where this is going to go, and, and especially after the way issue one ended and how that is going to turn the tide for what's going to be coming up going forward. How about something new from Dark Horse Comics and a hero, anti-hero, whatever you want to call her, Jenny Zero. This one not coming out until May the 5th, though, so not going to do any spoilers for this one. Dave Dewanch doing the doing the writing here, also the letters teaming up with Brockton McKinney for writing duties. Magenta King on the illustrations and Megan Huang on the colors. Now, we're meeting Agent Jenny Tetsuo of the Action Science Police, and they're basically there to protect Japan against monsters. Now, she's not too eager to go back to work, though, and there's a reason for that. You'll see a flashback of the last couple days, and you know why. Let's just say her best friend treats her pretty well. But Jenny's really good at her job. So she, whether she wants to be or not, she's back in. That's the only spoiler that I'll give you. Now, this latest invasion may actually pose a different set of problems, though. But Jenny might just have a secret weapon. And that is the best tease that I can give you without actually spoiling, spoiling anything. What was interesting about reading this was it almost felt like Pacific Rim meets Lobo. Because I felt like Jenny Zero is a very Lobo-esque character. Maybe a little bit of Tank Girl sprinkled in there as well. And it's just, the whole thing is a very, it's a very funky vibe. And I really, really kind of dug that. This book feels just, it feels shady. And I mean that as a compliment. Just shady all around. And it feels like more refreshing than I would have expected as I'm reading it. Because it just, it just seems like everybody's got a little bit of shadiness to them. Now, how the twist at the end is handled, though, will go a long way as to whether or not this story sets itself apart going forward or not. So that, that again, that's just like I said with the last book. It's a real key as to how that last bit actually plays out going forward. The art suits the story very, very well, and it definitely steps up in the big moments when it's needed. And there's times in this book where there is a lot going on around around these characters so and, and stuff just being destroyed left and right and for it, it takes a special kind of artist to be able to package all that in and present it in a way that doesn't seem too just jumbled or, or manic and that's absolutely not the case with Jenny Zero but I mean she she's one of those characters where you're either gonna love her or you're not but either way you're gonna be coming back to see what she's up to Sort of thing. So Jenny Zero, definitely intrigued by that one. A couple of new books this week that you're going to want to, I mean, give it a try, especially if you want something different in your pull box. Robin number one, Jenny Zero number one, definitely provide that for you. It's going to do for what we're reading up next. There's some big nerd news to talk about this week. So let's dive in. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Jeff Lemire, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Another major virtual convention from last year is returning. It's time for nerd news. And I'm talking about DC Fandom, which is actually going to be happening from Warner Brothers and DC on October the 16th. Of course, at DCFandom.com, you can get all the info. Of course, they had a ton of panels for movies, TV last year, comics. They actually did two of them last year, wildly successful. As far as I'm concerned, I thought they were very well put together, especially the second one, once they actually got one under their belt. 
I actually thought it was well put together. I know there wasn't much of a fan element in either one. They said there was going to be. That's also something that they might be able to improve on in this one. But here's the thing I want to spotlight in this. And I talked about this when, with the announcement of New York Comic Con going back to in-person in, in October. This event is going to take place the week after New York Comic Con. So immediately when I saw this date, my first thought was, well, how much of a presence is Warner Brothers in D.C. going to have at New York Comic Con at all? Like, can you even imagine them making any major announcements, doing anything with any sort of significance at New York Comic Con, knowing that they have their own event coming up the week after that? And I, don't, I know that you don't want to get too bogged down in behind the scenes of how of these events get put together, yada, yada, yada. But I can tell you right now that putting a convention together just because, just from what I know, virtually or not, there's a lot of work involved, like a lot. So the week before DC Fandom, everybody behind the scenes at Warner Brothers in DC is going to be running around like crazy trying to make sure that everything is the way it's supposed to be. How much time do you think they're going to take into putting New York Comic Con on? Now, does that mean they won't attend at all? I don't know. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. Would that be a good thing or a bad thing for them? I don't know. Because remember, they'd have to travel all the way from Burbank to New York to do this as well. And do they want to do that in large part? Because, you know, travel still a little bit iffy, vaccinated or not. Right. So it, I don't know. Maybe this says a lot as to what their presence is going to be at New York Comic Con. Is this a trend that we're going to see? I, it's too soon to tell. At this point, I think. But I just thought that was a very interesting date. But I'm excited for DC Fandom, actually. I think this will fall at a great time for them. Assuming that all of the fall TV series, you know, start back up like they normally would. Like the CW Arrowverse shows usually start up around that time. I think it's a really good time for them to do this. And they'll have a lot of movie stuff to talk about then as well. Really quickly, a Flintstone sequel is in the works from Warner Brothers as well, and it's going to be at Fox. So the animated series is going to be set 20 years after the original. It's going to be called Bedrock. And Elizabeth Banks is going to be the voice of a Pebbles that's going to be in her 20s. She's also going to produce as well. Now, Fred is near retirement, so that's where the family is sort of at right now. But here's my thing, and, and maybe this is the cynical part of me coming out. There's been a lot of adult animated series at Fox. Some of them have worked out. Some of them haven't. I mean, you look at stuff like Family Guy's worked out. Obviously, The Simpsons has worked out. All that that kind of toes the line of adult animation, I guess. You could make the argument that Bob's Burgers has really worked out. American Dad kind of worked out. I don't want to keep listing them off, but every time they have a new one of these, it seems like it's less and less successful than the predecessors. They came before it, right? And it's not that any of these shows aren't good. It's just that, I don't know, people maybe aren't interested or they're not as good or they've set a certain level of expectations. So I'm a little bit leery of this, to be honest. And I know that they've been trying to do something with the Flintstones for a while. And as much as you and I probably love the Flintstones, appealing to a younger audience and having a younger audience understand who the Flintstones are and care who they are, and I say younger, I don't mean as in like kids. I mean as like people in their 20s, 30s, things like that have to care about this show in order for it to be successful. So is it just going to be you and I that care about it and that will be enough? I don't know. But And here's the thing. Is this something that you need or you want? That's the other thing. I think it could be interesting. I think it could be fun. But I don't know. It, I think that you have to be really careful with adult animation. It has to be done 
really, really well. So hopefully this one has a, a really good story to it. And there's a reason for doing this other than, hey, here's the characters you remember from your youth. Isn't it fun to see them again? And isn't it fun to see them older and see what that dynamic is like now? That's not enough. You're going to have to give me something a little bit more than that to make me tune in to more than just the first episode. Boy, did we get a boatload of trailers this week. And I want to start with the one that just grabbed me the most, and that was for the the fourth and final season of Castlevania, which is going to be coming to Netflix on May the 13th. And does this look like a bonkers final season or what? Of course, you've got Trevor and Sifa, and they're trying to, you know, obviously take down the dark creatures, right? And that's sort of been their job from day one, right? It looks like Alucard is going to be doing the same thing, but almost on his own, right? It's almost like they're on two separate missions. And then you've also got Carmilla, who's telling her sisters, look, Hector's ready to go to make these dark creatures, and we could take, we could take over the world. Let's do this. And then, surprise, surprise, Isaac is still in the fold too. And guess what? Now, Isaac wants to do the same exact thing. So it's almost like you get a war being fought on four fronts. You've got some good, some bad, and then, oh, by the way, somebody, a bunch of somebodies actually, are trying to bring Dracula back to life. And I love the line in the trailer where, where Trevor says, you know, why would anybody do that? And I wish I could kill this guy twice for even trying. Loved that line. This is just going to be a bonkers final season. I, I hate to see it end after this season, but at the same time, like, I get it. But I will be very curious to see how this plays out going forward because there's talk of the spinoff series and things like that. So if there really is a doomsday type scenario here, where do we go from here? But that's way down the line. I just care about this final season at this point. I think it looks like it's going to be fantastic. Something I didn't expect to get this week was a first look at the Sweet Tooth live action series from Netflix, which is going to be coming out on June the 4th, of course, based on the Jeff Lemire story. And I got to say, this really grabbed me. This trailer did. I was very, I mean, you want to talk about capturing the heart and soul of the original Vertigo series. They really do that in this trailer. And the use of practical effects here, I think, is very, very much at the forefront of that. And then you've got Christian Coven, Con- Con- Convery, excuse me, as Gus and Will Forte as father. Just a couple, I mean, so far, just based on face value. Great casting choices there. And then you've got James Brolin, who's going to be the narrator as well. And the fact that there is a narrator to me gives it that just it, it brings more heart and soul to it. I hate to keep bringing up the, those two words, but that really is where we're at here with this series. And, it, you know, of course, Jim Mickle and Beth Schwartz going to be the showrunners for this. And the, the synopsis, it, it, you see, you see yeah, there's a virus element to this. But there's also the the hybrid element to this. And, of course, you know, hybrids, of course, they're going to be just completely accepted into society, right? So then you've got this extraordinary adventure that starts with Sweet Tooth, right? And searching for the meaning of home. That's right from the synopsis. And I think that this is one of the this is one of those series that, again, I, I hate to cliche this, but this is one of those shows that we need right now. This is one of those shows that I think is going to be really, really is really going to hit home for a lot of people who don't know the Sweet Tooth story. And for anybody who the, that is a fan of the comic, I think you're really going to love this as well. I thought this was an excellent first trailer to introduce this series. Got a quick look at The Tomorrow War, the Chris Pratt sci-fi movie that's going to be coming to Amazon Prime Video 
on July the 9th. And yeah, there's destruction everywhere, like everywhere. This is a, a basically they travel back in the to the they travel back and they are looking for help for a war that's being fought that they're losing in the future. So they go back to kind of get somebody to 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 get some folks to help them out with that because these aliens are everywhere and they're basically overrunning society. One thing I really did love that they did with this trailer was they didn't show me the alien right away. And I say trailer. It was a really quick tease, like 30 seconds or something like that. But you don't show me the aliens, and I love that. I don't think you need to push that right away, and they didn't. So I'm glad they didn't do that in the first time. It looks like it could be fun. I, I really don't think you can judge it based on this alone. So I wouldn't do that right now. But, I mean, I get Chris Pratt, J.K. Simmons, Yvonne Starowski. I'm, I'm, I'm down for checking this out for sure. Here's something that looks like it's going to be a lot of fun, though. Did you know there's going to be a Teen Titans Go! DC Superhero Girls crossover? It's going to be on Cartoon Network on May the 31st. So this is a four-part crossover, and it's actually going to be called Space House. And it looks like it's just going to be a lot of fun. There's, there's, there's burgeritos between Cyborg and Beast Boy. It's like part burger, part burrito, and stacked on top of each other. It just looks like... It's going to be a ton of fun. It looks like almost like they're trying to go on vacation, right? These two groups and they're, they're hanging out together. They're having a good time. And then it never really lasts that long, right? When you're talking about heroes, there's always some sort of evil that has to be dealt with. And you see that happening in this trailer, but you want to talk about a group. I mean, usually when the teen Titans go crossover with another group, but they don't get along very well, they get along supremely well from the looks of things in this trailer. But I mean, again, this is just one of those things where, you know, you could sit down with the kids, you can have a little bit of fun with this one. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. I think I'm, I'm just really excited to see wh what they're going to put together with this one. I think it's going to be fun. Those cro these crossovers with Teen Titans Go are usually a blast. And I think this one's going to be as well. Really quickly, Noah Centineo exits the role of He-Man in the Masters of the Universe movie. This first reported by Collider. Aaron and Adam McNeese still set to direct these project from Sony, but the movie's gone through a ton of changes behind the scenes from writers to directors to all of these other things. It's been really difficult to put this together. And the, obviously that's pushed the movie back. It's been taken off the schedule before. It feels like development hell at this point. You've lost your star now. And what, is this a huge name to lose? I guess maybe not. I know that Noah Centineo has, has a big fan base. He's going to be in Black, the Black Adam movie coming up. Obviously, he feels like this isn't coming out anytime soon, so he's out. That's what, that's what this feels like to me. Not putting words in his mouth. That's what this feels like. It's like, you guys aren't going to get to this in a while. I've got other things I could be doing. My, my stock's pretty high right now. I'm not going to waste time to see if, whether or not this is actually going to come down, come to pass. So, and, and yeah, I can't blame them for that. So I don't know. It feels like development. Hell, I, I feel like the next announcement we're going to get, this, this is going to be pulled off the schedule again. We could lose directors again. Who knows? Well, I, I really hope that this gets made because I really love masters of the universe. I hope that the anime series from Kevin Smith is hugely successful. And maybe that, you know, lights a fire under Sony and, and everybody else to finally get this thing just done and made live action wise, but at least we're getting something masters of the universe coming up. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the down and nerdy podcast. Again, thanks again to the cast of Tom Clancy's without remorse. And of course, Elizabeth Barrington from the never. So you're going to have a busy weekend watching some great stuff 
from streaming services and on HBO as well. Again, make sure you're checking out HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Nerdy12 and code Nerdy12 to get those 12 free meals from HelloFresh to support our sponsors this week. Find us wherever you're at at downandnerdypodcast.com and at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram and at downandnerdy on Facebook. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.